Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. On this week's episode, I sat down to discuss all things breathing with David Jackson, better known as Jacko. This is the most in-depth dive I've done so far on the respiratory process. Jacko shares the physiology of breathing and discusses the Bohr effect and the role of CO2 in the respiratory process. Jacko shares how we can gather our baseline or bolt score and also shares methods for increasing our bolt score. Regardless of if you are involved in athletic development, breathing is an unavoidable part of life. It is the life process at a base level, and we discuss how we can take hold of the autonomic or reflexive processes and mindfully push for more effective breathing strategies. Jacko shared a lot of great tips in this one, so without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with David Jackson, better known as Jacko. He's a master coach with the Oxygen Advantage, an ex-pro rugby player, as well as a founder of the School of Calisthenics. You also run a podcast, and I'm not even going to compete with the intro because you guys have the best intro in the game. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The name of the podcast is the Movement, Strength, and Play podcast. So if you've never checked it out, you're missing out. But they have a great intro. Not even going to compete with that today. Dave Alorca, uh, he's like the hype man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt, man. You got me fired up every episode coming into that for sure. So it's a pleasure to sit down with you today. How are things on the other side of the pond? Just introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, so I'm um, yeah, Jacko. Here in the UK, the sun is actually shining, and it is. Uh, yeah, it's uh, we're being blessed today. Randomly, there's the the weather is good over this side of things, but um, life is good. There's a lot of stuff, lot of stuff going on that's that's been really excited to be to be a part of. Particularly some of the the, the breathing side of things that we can get stuck into. That's from my perspective of being, I retired from a head injury back in 2013 for my rugby career. That's what ended my rugby career: a seizure on the field and a, a bleed on the brain. And, you know, when I played, we knew nothing about how, how breathing might improve our performance. We were training everything else within our body, yet we never trained the respiratory system, not like specifically, you know, and we weren't, we were trying to optimize everything, but we never tried to optimize that. And it's, you know, I've been lucky enough at the moment to be doing a bit of work within that, but back within rugby where, you know, it's a sport that I love and to be able to, to give back some of the stuff we've been learning and, and some of the stuff that's coming out of the research around training the respiratory system and training, you know, breath work specifically, how that helps improve the performance, how it helps us recover, how it helps our mental states, how it helps us calm and manage nerves. You know, I was, I played 316 professional games of rugby and I was nervous for every single one of them. <laughs> and I was never given any tools to, to how to, to manage that. I, I worked out little different ways myself, many of which were just, meant that I just had superstitions. I had the same pair of pants, the same towel, the same this, the same that. But then if one of those things wasn't there, then it made me panic even more. So it wasn't really, it was just a crutch. It wasn't really like a tool to help. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff there that's, that's nice to be a part of. Yeah, and I can just thinking about breathing and the way that it's come into kind of my uh, own experience in the last couple of years, It's become a topic that's much more discussed among athletic uh, prep coaches, which is great. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if we're applying it in the proper manners, which we're going to kind of get into today, Uh, because my first experiences with breathing were most associated with meditation. And I'm not saying that that's not a a good thing, but uh, as we'll see. There's different things such as breath holds uh, and actually making yourself hungry for oxygen that we'll talk about and the benefits of that, because a lot of my experiences were like yoga and meditation where you're taking an excess amounts of oxygen. So we'll kind of talk about some of these different things uh, as we go along. And I saw you post a brilliant uh, post the other day. I think it was on Instagram. Uh, You said basically that in life you're breathing in and breathing out or holding your breath. There's nothing else uh, until death, essentially. And, and I loved that because we make everything so complex uh, sometimes, and it really is that simple. I had Nick Moss on on a previous podcast, the podcast right before this, and we were talking about a lot of things related to neurology and the visual system and the vestibular system and all this. And he even said, well, you know, the visual system, yes, it's, it's up here. You have this hierarchy whenever you're uh, looking at the brain and how it functions, but 
you actually need to go after breathing before you would go after the visual system because it has such a big response on the ANS uh, and the way that we would respond to things. So, you know, that, that's just been all over the place and all the discussions that I've had. Uh, and I just thought that was a brilliant quote by you the other day because it really yeah. simplified things. It, the simplicity of it, when I said it out loud to myself, it like blew my own mind of like, obviously like some people go, oh yeah, of course it's obvious, mate. Like, you know, the fact that you're either breathing in, you're breathing out, you're holding your breath, there's nothing else. That's that's all that's happening. Um, well, there's other stuff on top, but that is the, the root of like those things. One of those three things is always happening. And I found, I just, I found that, I found that, profound to even yeah to to be like that is it and then what's then oh, we're going to go we can go off in lots of different tangents so try and keep me on board I'll, I'll but there's within that so if breathing and life itself consists of inhale exhale and then holding the breath or you know it might it's just a pause or you know but there there has to be a there's a stop between the last exhale and the next inhale, however small that pause may be. And then when we think about breathing, what do we what do we place all of our attention on? How you inhale. And then we're just gone, but hold on, it's only a third of what you do. <laughs> like what about what about the others? And that is a bit of a misconception, um, potentially that not necessarily like just on purpose, just a bit sort of like intuitively, we just lean towards like it's all like inhaling is what's important. If I'm not inhaling, I'm not getting enough air in, then um then that's not good. I'm not going to, I'm going to, you know, and, and that sort of, there is some stuff there that's, that's not when we look at the science of breathing and we look at the, you know, there's a, a nice body of sort of like 20 odd years plus of, of research that's gone into breathing a lot within sports as a lot of research typically, or, or sometimes does, um, that's bringing out some really interesting stuff that, of how we can use our breathing to improve our respiratory system improve physiologically how our body responds to lower oxygen or higher CO2 or both or the lactate that gets created as part of that anaerobic system and how we can train the body through our breathing to tolerate some of those elements without even having to train at threshold and get some benefits. But then we can add, there's some real nice papers where it's like, okay, we're doing some threshold work and then we add a breathing load and what are some what are some of the things that we're seeing and then it's like oh the muscles get even better at buffering that acidity that's created just by simply and this example would be like just by simply holding the breath during some repeat sprints and they've duplicated that across different studies in different sports as well so yeah man there's uh there's there's oh there's a lot of other there are lots of the other thing i was going to say what bit that you said there about the, like the neurology so going back to like like order and um within the brain your respiratory center, where does it sit in the brain? It sits in the brain stem, like the, the oldest part of the brain, so we call the reptilian brain. So you've got your, like, your medulla and your pons and your midbrain in there. And it's like the fact that it's the fact that it's there and it's in the oldest part of the brain, it, and the fact that it is automatic and it's good whether you choose to breathe in or breathe out, it doesn't matter. You're going to do it anyway. But that doesn't mean you're going to do it well or efficiently. It doesn't mean that it can't also become dysfunctional unaffected or if it's all right doesn't mean as a sports person or if you're a coach your team or sports men and women that you're working with doesn't mean that they're optimizing it you know we don't think of, so breathing is a movement pattern your rib cage moves your diaphragm which is a muscle moves contracts helps to move the ribs it is a movement pattern the same way your squat is a movement pattern now if i come into your gym with a crappy squat pattern and uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to chuck some, I'm just going to stick some more weight on. And you're like, no, we need to work on you. We need to work on your squat pattern. Your technique's awful. And I'm like, yeah, but it's, it's all right. It's like, why, why do I need to optimize? Like, we don't have that conversation. We know that that's a thing. And it's uh, why, oh, why is a, a question to ask people to ask themselves, but certainly that one I've, I've gone into is going like, why wouldn't I optimize this thing? And actually, I started prioritizing. Well, two reasons. I started prioritizing one because for my brain injury that finished my rugby career, that part of the brainstem in concussive uh, and head injury incidents like will often be disrupted and it will affect our breathing patterns and our sensitivity to, to CO2 buildup um, and therefore like your respiratory rate and things like that. And so it was part of my rehabilitation to like, okay, 
get into this further, but it still came from a place of, <laughs> I got really into it and excited about it from two elements. One, I felt a difference. I did six weeks of trying to breathe through my nose and then did a, I was running a, a, a 20 minute, five, 20, 20 minutes, 15, 5k, which is not bad for like, okay, I was an ex pro rule player, but like, it's not bad 5k time. Like it's all, it's not, you're not saying any world records, but it's not bad. Um, and then in six weeks, I was, my training consisted of going on one, one run a week. That was a 5k park run. So like there was no training. I just went and did the thing. Um, and nothing changed for six weeks other than I tried to breathe through my nose and I wasn't even very good at it. It was horrible. It was like snot pouring out of my face and all sorts. And, um, in six weeks, I knocked a minute off my, my, my 5k dropped from night to 1917. And I was like, I then, I like sort of like felt it and was like, this is a thing. And I was like, I'm not even doing this right. And then the other element that made me want to like hone in, I was going, okay, how much time do I like with my training? Do I invest in, uh, you know, with calisthenics, a lot of the upper body stuff, it might be like handstands and pull-ups and, and getting better and stronger, but mastering the technique of those things. How much time do I invest in that? A movement pattern that I might do. If I do three sets of 10, I'll do 30 of them. Yet in breathing, I'm going to do, 20 to 25,000 repetitions a day. And then I'm like, that's a lot of reps. <laughs> what if I'm doing each one of those a bit shitty, a bit crappy? Like what if I start to not only correct, what if I start to optimize the way that I'm actually doing those reps? Um, and if I make a very small change because of the sheer number of them doing, am I not going to feel a, quite a, a, a much bigger benefit? And that just really got me engaged in looking into it and then, the more I sort of delved into Pandora's box, that's just the, the more it kept giving, giving me back. And then working with, um, you know, I work from my experience within having played rugby. I work with quite a lot of uh, like professional rugby players, uh, as well as some endurance sports like triathlon, triathletes, Ironman, um, but working with them. And in, a, in, a, in like, you know, just a few weeks, like seeing the, the effect is having on, having on then I'm like, this is something that we that we need to be talking about. And it's unless your sport involves not breathing, then and even then, the only sport that involves what sport involves not breathing? There is one. What sport involves not breathing? <laughs> Come on. Uh that's a good question. This one there's know. one sport. As there might be others. I think there's only one. Free diving. Yeah. Yeah. So in free diving, but but then in order to do that, you've got to be very good at breathing. Yeah, you, you have like you have like Wim Hof, right? <laughs> right. So, he's very good at it. Wim Hof's not a free diver. Oh, well, he does all those. He's diving under iceberg and stuff, right? <laughs> or oh, whatever. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be fair, yeah, to yeah, be yeah. fair, he, he'll, he can, yeah, he's got a world record for swimming under ice, hasn't he? Yeah. I don't think he'd call himself a free diver, though. No, he doesn't go to depth. Anyway, but anyway, but yeah, but yeah. So basically, everyone's sport involves breathing. Yet, how can we not training it or trying to optimize it? And actually, that's one of the things that so Patrick McKeon is uh, that's uh, that I trained with. He is the author and owner of and the creator of the Oxygen Advantage, which is a, a framework for using scientifically um, proven, backed and, and research proven um, breathing exercises to to improve our athletic performance. But it's not only athletic performance it's going to improve. It's going to help all aspects of our health and wellness because of how breathing influences your nervous system. And if it influences your nervous system, it's influencing a lot of stuff. It's influenced our heart rate, our blood pressure, our thoughts, our emotions, our sleep. Like, been you name it, <laughs> the breathing affects it. Yeah, so a, a lot of great points there to kind of dive through before we get into the specifics here. And as you were speaking, you said a couple of things that, that I was actually going to say if you didn't say them, as far as like the subconscious nature of breathing and why perhaps people may ignore it as something that you can actually alter and use to alter your, your uh, physical state and well-being and mental state as well. Uh, it, because it's subconscious and some people think <clears throat> it's going to occur anyways. I'm not going to be able to optimize it. Like we talked about it being a part of the brainstem. And then the other feeling like I can't focus on this for 25,000 breaths a day because you can't actually do that. You would drive yourself crazy, right? But we're <laughs> going to get into some methodologies today that, you know, that are going to optimize uh, those different ways in which you can breathe. And it's going to drive the body's 
physiology towards more optimal breath patterns. So that was one thing that was going through my mind and being a strength coach myself, like you were speaking about the fact that we always focus on the inhale and it's just like in the weight room. We always focus on the return. Nobody gives a crap about how you go down in your squat as long as you get up and you're not hurt. Right. For the most part, uh, you know, most people ignore the eccentric and isometric portions of a lift. Uh, and I've kind of made like a, a living on paying attention to those portions of lifts. And what do you know? My concentric returns on lifts are through the roof. My, my kids do great because they have great control in those other aspects. So that was going through my mind, uh, just thinking like a strength coach for sure. Yeah. Well, you're right. Cause we went, we went inhale, exhale and pause. And it's like concentric, eccentric, isometric, like, because because then we went and say, well, it is a moving pattern. And if it is a moving pattern and uses muscles and joints, well, then there is that. It is concentric, eccentric, and isometric. No, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So just to kind of give us a background going into this, let's talk about the different things that are going to regulate our breathing. Let's talk a little bit about the physiology of breathing and the bore effect uh, and how CO2 is actually going to be the main corporate behind encouraging our breathing pattern. So if you can just talk a little bit about that, and then we'll talk about how you can get a bolt score and other things pertaining yeah. to that. Cool. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that the that sometimes the best way for people to understand something is to feel it. And uh, we'll we'll do that, and then I'll, then I'll explain a little bit. Because typically, we would I certainly did like never really thought about it, but someone posed the question like, "Why do you breathe?" Well, I breathe to get oxygen in, and you know, there's no doubt that every cell in the body needs oxygen, and we breathe because we need oxygen. But is it the thing when we say like, "Why do you breathe?" In terms of what's triggering you to breathe, if it is automatic. There must be some set for something to be automatic. Like the, the windscreen wipers on my car are all, they have an automatic setting. In order to be automatic, they have to have some sensors on the windscreen that detect water hitting it. And then there's a connection that then sends a message uh, to the computer wherever to like turn them on. So if my breathing's automatic, there must be some sensors that are sensing something changing that tend, sends a message for me to then breathe, which is going to then the diaphragm to contract. Typically, we think, well, I need to breathe because I need to get oxygen in. So therefore, like the thing must be sensing if I'm going to have a, a guess, it's sensing that oxygen's low. And when oxygen gets to a certain level, it then triggers me to breathe. And if that were the case, if I was to hold my breath and people could do this, if I try and take a big breath in and try and hold my breath for as long as possible. <gasps> if I was pinching my nose, and I was holding my breath. Like typically, how would that breath hold finish? I'd end up letting go and I'd go and then breathe in so i'd basically like breathe out and then breathe in and then everyone goes oh yeah that is what you do you know but so if you needed to get oxygen in wouldn't the first thing when you finish a breath will be to breathe in whereas actually the reality of the thing that is being that the brain uh, stem so the receptors the chemoreceptors in your brain stem are uh, monitoring is carbon dioxide so it's the primary driver for breathing. There are receptors that do measure levels of oxygen and pH, but the primary thing is CO2. And linked to the fact that it's pH is that carbon dioxide is created and we do have to breathe it out. But it's not a waste gas that we just need to get rid of. It is the Bohr effect that you mentioned. Christian Bohr in 1904 noticed uh, this, so he got to name it after himself. It's always good when you sort of discover something, you get it called after you. The hemoglobin that carries oxygen in red blood cells releases that oxygen more readily, like releases its affinity to oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide because the effect that carbon dioxide has on the pH of the blood, it reduces, makes the blood more acidic. And under those conditions, oxygen is released more readily. So it's more efficient at getting oxygen to your tissues where it actually needs to be. Um, and that, that occurs based on the ox uh, CO2, carbon dioxide in the blood, gets carried as carbonic acid. It dissociates into a H plus ion bicarbonate. Um, it makes the blood more acidic. Your brain is essentially, when we break it down, yes, it's using breathing to get oxygen in, but it's using breathing to modulate your pH of the blood. Once your pH to stay around 7.3, 7.4, it, need, it, it wants to keep it in quite you know, small margins. And when it goes, when it needs to, it will tell you to breathe out a bit more carbon dioxide and it will take you to take a larger or, or, or smaller breath in, whatever. And it modulates our breathing that way. 
All very good. But it's important to understand the mechanisms. Sometimes we don't want to look at the science of it, but it's important to understand the mechanisms to, so that you really understand what's occurring at a baseline level. And let's talk about measurements now, uh, because you can't really understand how deficient you are in something or how terrible you are in something if you don't have a measurement, right? So. Yeah. This normally shocks people the first time I did it. I'm still not a very great, I'm, I'm still not great at this. But as far as the baseline, I've referenced is the bolt score. So can you talk a little bit about how people would utilize that to see their baseline of breathing and what expectations would be as far as being an efficient breather? Yeah, yeah, really great question. So bolt score, bolts, B-O-L-T stands for body oxygen level test. Uh, in the Buteco method, they call it control pause. In a lot of studies that they've done, they just call it like a, a relaxed breath hold after exhalation, which is which is basically what it is. It's a if if what we've described is the fact that the when your brain triggers you to take your next breath, whenever that is, the next one, it's just noticed that carbon dioxide levels have risen to a certain point. If we then do a normal exhalation, not we're trying to get a gauge of like what's your what's your normal level of breathing like? What's your when you're not thinking about it? How sensitive or how receptive to changes of carbon dioxide is your brainstem that's governing the respiratory system that's governing your breathing? So we don't try to do like big ones or change your breathing. We're just going to try and do a, a normal breath in and a normal breath out. Once you finish that normal breathing cycle at the end of that normal exhale, we hold the breath and we simply wait until you have a, the first definite desire to breathe in, which might be a little twinge in your neck. It might be a dive from a little bit of a twinge. It, it's it's your your feeling that you need to take a breath in, an impulse from the brain being triggered to the diaphragm. When you do, you let go of your nose and you breathe in normally. And you should be breathing in normally. If you're gasping for breath because <gasps> you've been using your willpower to hold your breath, you've gone past that first desire to breathe. And then you, that's not telling us about your true sensitivity to that build up so i'm terrible at that too i'm terrible at that i always hold too long and then <laughs> but it's only and it, and it might we're talking like and then a couple of seconds difference it might be say you're like 15 but right? actually maybe more like 30 we're looking at the time delay the time difference between at the end of your normal exhale if you just pause and stop with no willpower when does your brain send a signal for you to breathe and that might be 10 seconds right me i was about nine seconds when i first started which was like Another reason why I was like, holy crap, I need to do something about this because that put me in a category of less than 10 of like, you've got like severe asthmatic and I've never had asthma in my whole entire life. I was like a fit and healthy rugby player that then had this head injury. And I was like, hold on a minute. Why would my breathing be so bad? Like what they started pieces in the puzzle started to fall together. So um, all the research done on this is 25 seconds is your marker that you want that to be. And it's obviously, it's not black and white and just this straight line that as soon as you hit 25, everything's perfect and below 25, everything's terrible. No, it's a sliding scale. But 25 seconds and above, we're more likely to be a, a good functional breather, have good mechanics of our breathing because it goes hand in hand. If, you've, if you're very sensitive to carbon dioxide, you're going to breathe fast. If you breathe fast, your breathing mechanics get compromised because your body can't do nice diaphragmatic slow breathing when you're having the desire to breathe coming in all the time. So when we're above 25 seconds, we tend to be more functional breathers in terms of diaphragmatic breathing, and we have a good relationship or tolerance of carbon dioxide, so not being sensitive to it. Below 25 seconds, you know, there's room to improve. We're more likely to be dysfunctional in terms of our uh, breathing patterns. Um, our sensitivity to carbon dioxide needs to be improved, um, you know, reality for a lot of people like 20 seconds and above like something around 20 is 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 decent you're going to feel a lot better when you're over 25 uh, you're certainly going to feel some really differences in your performance and recovery when you're at 30 and above we want athletes to be 30 and above uh, but we really want anybody to be 20 and above and, and, and getting towards close to 25 but it's not uncommon for a lot of people that i first start doing work with where we're like 12, 15, 70, you know, it, it, that's very, very common. Like I said, I was less than 10 myself. I can speak to this like 
honestly around eight to ten seconds um starting my bolt and then like i've never really progressed if i'm just being completely honest all the way up the scale to where i need to be but i can speak to like whenever i was somewhere between even 15 to 18 that feeling extremely you know different than my starting point even even though i never progressed up to like that 30 uh and i should probably get back to it but if you've if you went from like eight seconds up to 18, you're going to feel a world of difference. That's right. So just imagine, you know, getting to that marker, which you were speaking to. So let's talk a little bit about, I've got my baseline. Uh, let's talk about some of the methodologies that we would begin to use to increase. Can I, can I yeah, yeah, go just ahead. put one thing in context? It'd be nice to just put in context, people. Just go that time delay between your normal exhale and your desire to breathe in. Say it's 10 seconds. Let's make the math easy. 10 seconds. Compared to uh, an athlete that's breathing really well, got really good efficiency of their breathing, or you, once you've trained yourself to be really good at 10 seconds compared to 30 for the first desire to breathe after you've done a normal exhale. That person at 30 is literally three times as much time delay in that that person can finish an exhale. And we're talking resting. We're not talking about doing exercise, but resting. They can finish an exhale and they just sit there just doing nothing 30 seconds before they even feel like they need to be. They're not that not, they're not holding their breath. They're not trying to hold their breath. How calm is that person's nervous system when it's not having to work as hard? How calm is that person's mental state because of that calming on the nervous system? How much more efficient is that person's breathing? How much more energy is someone with a 10 second bolt score wasting on breathing because they have to breathe more every like minute. And then how does that then influence athletic performance? The person who's got a very sensitive to CO2 and a poor, a poor bolt score, they're going to be out of breath compared to the person that's at 30. They're going to be out of breath in the warm up, let alone before we've done anything. <laughs> does that make sense? Absolutely. And, like, yeah. and, and it ties to some things that we'll probably mention later on, like even like your posture how it's so rooted in our breathing patterns. And again, that gets into energy systems and just like your, yeah. your functional movement. So we'll get into that in a little bit, but I, you said something there that kind of made me bring back another point I was thinking about. I was thinking about how the bolt score may also shift based off of stress and different times of the day. Is that something that you could maybe talk yeah. about a little bit? Because I've tried different times and I always notice at the end of my day, my breathing is much different than the beginning of my day. So can you kind of talk about how uh, maybe stress may cause our bolt score to move and how we may see natural fluctuations in our yeah. breathing patterns? Yeah, there tends to be some natural fluctuation that, that typically a lot of people find later on in the day, their bolt score, if they took it, might be, uh, might be a bit longer. But we're not talking like, oh, I'm 10 seconds in the morning and I'm 25 in the afternoon. We're talking like, oh, it's maybe, you know, one or two seconds different. So a little bit of different. And what's important is that you're comparing like for like. So what we typically say to people is first thing in the morning before anything else has happened. So if I've uh, got stressed in the morning and that stress might be me having an argument with Mrs. Jacko, or it might be that I've done a training session or it might be that I've had a coffee. And you go, oh, coffee, is that stress? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a stimulant and it's going to increase my heart rate. What's that going to do to my, what does that do to my nervous system? When my heart rate's increasing, how's that going to affect my breathing? Um, which then gives us a nice opportunity to, to explain how with every breath you take, there is this relationship between your breathing and your heart rate and your nervous system. So when you inhale, each inhale you take is more sympathetic dominant of the nervous system and your heart rate speeds up. And every exhale you do, it's more slowing and calming for the heart rate and parasympathetic promoting. And that happens with every inhalation and exhalation. So if you start ramping up the stress, then you're going to start triggering a response of faster inhalations. If I'm having a stressful morning, if I then the idea of just stopping, if you're really, and let's take the extremes, obviously it's easier to like paint the picture, take the real extreme. <laughs> I moved house last Friday. And I got pretty stressed moving house and uh, threw a portable toilet in the direction of my wife. Not, not, not strictly in the direction of my wife, but just over towards a wall where I was annoyed uh, at this bleeding. Why did we still have this portable toilet that we never use camping? Why are we now taking it with us? Like it just needs to go in the bin. Anyway, um, I was stressed. And if at that point you'd have said to me, Jacko, hold your breath and just let me know how long you could hold it for. What would I say? 
one, I would say F off. Two, if I actually did it, how long would I hold my breath for? No time at all. I'd just panic. Because when you're in that state of stress, the drive for breathing is high. Our stress response is mainly a shallow, fast mouth breathing. That's, uh, that, that goes hand in hand with that, that sympathetic turn, that stress response. So if you are stressed, you're going to want to breathe faster. If you want to breathe faster, you're not going to be able to stop and pause and hold your breath. So your bolt score is hugely influenced by your mental state and your sort of levels of stress in the body. If you've had a bad night's sleep or you know, other things going on that are effectively a stressor on the body, you'll notice a, you'll notice a drop in your bolt score for sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that all makes sense. I'm glad to know I'm, I'm not the only one that throws portable toilets at my wife. <laughs> I did, just for the record, I didn't throw it at my wife. It was just... It was close. But yeah, all good references there. So that kind of brings that, that. That's something that was standing out to me, thinking about how it shifts because I've personally experienced that. And you were kind of talking about some things that would probably blend nicely with our next talking point, which is how we can bias the parasympathetic and sympathetic state. And this is more for like athletic performance. Uh, as far as my own, again, personal account and experience, breathing how did i first bring it into my team we we utilize rpr uh, resets with our team and we started utilizing like uh you know box control breathing uh, while doing that and what it did for us is it took a time in our pregame prep that was completely and totally the wild west and lawless with adolescent kids running around listening to music which that's great you know we have that has its time and place but it just gave it more structure and it also got them in a state of relaxation. Now you have to obviously get to another state right before the game, probably, but that's how we kind of brought breathing into our program the first time. So let's talk about first, how we can get the benefits of the calming effect of breathing and some of the different uh, breathing techniques we can use, utilize for that. Then let's talk about how we can kind of amp things up. And then let's kind of talk about how we can change our breathing throughout the day and different things that might promote good waking, midday, end of day practices. So we'll just kind of dice it all up here. So essentially, if we're understanding on the on that basic premise that like inhalations, more sympathetic dominant, exhalation, more parasympathetic dominant, um, and that that speeding of the heart rate, the, the inhales and slowing of the exhales, we can start to go, okay, I can have a uh, Brian McKenzie heard him say, uh, described the, the breath as the remote control for the nervous system, which I love because you go, okay, those two things. If I do something with my inhales, I can work towards that sympathetic drive in a, in a, in a good way. Like I say, you don't want to be too relaxed sometimes. But then when I need to calm myself down, I can think about my so doing something with my exhales, like ex- extending and, and prolonging my, my exhales. And even just as a, as a very sort of basic, like calming trigger for the body or calming state for the body going, when we're talking about trying to like balance the nervous system, I'm getting a bit too uh, on edge Well, your box breathing, what you're doing is you're having an equal, your box breathing is like, might be four seconds in like a typical four box be four seconds in hold for four, four seconds out, hold for four. So you inhale and exhale are balanced. They're equal. And then the pause at the top and bottom of the breath, that's giving yourself some time. What it's slowing down the whole breath cycle. That's like a 16 second breath cycle. It's pretty slow. So it's slowing everything down, which is calming and relaxing and parasympathetic promoting in itself. The inhalations and exhalations are equal, but then also the slow speed of that and the pause, particularly at the end of the exhale, is allowing carbon dioxide levels to build up. Carbon dioxide allows uh, is the catalyst that allows oxygen to be released from the red blood cells into the tissues, like we said with that bore effect. But it's also plays a role in dilating blood vessels, helping with circulation. Like that's something we want in our warm-up. We don't want to be breathing heavy and getting dumping off carbon dioxide and making blood vessels constrict. So that totally makes sense why breathing in that way is a bit of a practice is going to keep me calm. The, the classic four by four box was made famous from uh, because Navy SEALs were using it before going into their sort of operations because it would wasn't going to make them too relaxed but it was making them relaxed enough and calm enough to be able to focus. And remember, think about like cognition and focus and concentration, how important that is for sport as well as for a Navy SEAL. Because, and and what, what's one of the big drivers around that? A big, two big drivers around that are what's our level of sort of sympathetic state or tone? 
because that drives narrow field of vision and affects our sort of like rational thinking. So that's one element. So if we can breathe in a way that helps to calm that and actually widens out that view and actually helps us with the parts of the brain that allow us to think better. And then also we think about oxygen supply to the brain. Well, then if I've got good tolerance and good levels of CO2 in the body, because I'm doing some slow box breathing and pausing. So rather than rushing to get rid of carbon dioxide, I'm allowing it to stay in the body. That's helping oxygen to be released from the blood, but equally it's allowing circulation to improve. And we think about circulation from an athletic perspective, we're thinking about getting it to other muscles, but actually getting it to the brain, like the brain is king. It doesn't matter what, like I had a brain injury. Yeah. I, I took me about years to get over my, my head injury. And when you take the brain out, everything's off. It doesn't matter how I, I train my biceps. So yeah, but nothing's going to happen if the brain is out. And you know, you find that out very, we all understand that when you've, when you've experienced it, you know how important it is. Take the brain out, it's all gone. So getting good oxygen supply to the brain is paramount to athletic performance, but as well as like all those things around like cognition um, and our ability to be able to focus and, and maintain concentration, which, you know, under fatigue, how many times do we make mistakes in sport because we can't do that under fatigue? how much of that comes down to our, our skill? Well, when I'm not tired, I can do the skill. Okay, how can I bias things like my breathing and other elements of my training, but breathing, very simply, how can I use that to improve my physiological state that gives me the best chance of performing the skill I know I can do when I'm not fatigued? The point I was thinking about as you were speaking there too, I hear like there's a love of nasal breathing and I completely and totally agree with that. Can we talk a little bit about like whenever you want to involve in through the nose, out through the mouth, as far as like what that would be biasing and, and how that might change things as far as your physiological response and what you might actually get from that? Ultimately, the nose is designed for breathing and the mouth is designed for talking, eating. <laughs> there's 30 different functions of the nose, none of which the mouth have. Um, now, when we're, um, when we're exercising at an intensity, if we take a, a classic sort of like um, fight or flight response of running away from a tiger or whatever, then there's a, a short period of time where we're having like, you know, spikes of adrenaline and all sorts of stuff going on and heart rate's going up and our breathing is going to um, want to increase to facilitate that phys physiological like thing that we need to go and do. And having that big airway in terms of the mouth, that big hole in your face open to let a lot of air in really quickly for a short period of time just facilitates that to happen. Like clearly no problem. We have the ability to do that, but it doesn't provide any protection to those airways. Actually, a lot of the time people with um, inflammation issues like, uh, like asthma, um, when they switch to nasal breathing, those symptoms go away because all of a sudden they have, the filtration system that the nose provides that helps protect the airway. We've got nitric oxide in the nose. The bacteria in your nose create as a vasodilator. Helps blood be distributed more uh, more evenly within the within the lungs when we're breathing in through the nose that we miss out on with our mouth breathing. The nose provides more resistance, slows down our breathing, which actually helps with oxygen uptake in the blood. But that resistance can feel a bit more challenging when you're not used to it. Now, there are uh, there's one study in particular where they have compared nasal breathing and mouth breathing at VO2 max testing. And there was no drop in power output or their maximum oxygen uptake when they were nasal breathing compared to mouth breathing. But what they did notice when they were nasal breathing was a 22% reduction in their respiratory rate and increased levels of CO2 showing that they were more tolerable of carbon dioxide. And this is because they were trained nasal breathers. It was uh, George Dallum is an Olympic triathlon coach. It's a 2018 paper. People can look it up. And these were people that had adapted to nasal breathing and using their nose how they should do. And for some of them, it was like, you know, they've been doing it for years. But when they had used that, at that maximum intensity, they were breathing 22% less and had more CO2 within the body. That's 22% more efficient 
of something that's so wasting less energy on breathing. How did they also feel afterwards? How, how well do they recover and regain their breathing? Those things aren't what they necessarily tested, but you can, you can, you can imagine that they're in a, a state of less stress and they've got less, uh, their ability to recover will be massively improved as well. And also they've got more energy to spend on the physical activity they're actually doing rather than the breathing that facilitates them being able to do that physical activity. So it can be done at all out max. For most people, unless they're gonna invest a significant amount of time in that, they're gonna to get to a point in their training or in their um, exercise or, or within their competition where they need to use the mouth because they just can't facilitate that amount of air coming in and out through the nose. It'll make them panic trying to feel, they feel like they're suffocating breathing in and out through the nose. So breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth, but trying to slow down the exhale, remembering that when I get into that fast, <laughs> fast mouth panty breathing, it's very inefficient in terms of getting rid of a lot of carbon dioxide the other thing that we haven't mentioned about in terms of breathing efficiency is the amount of air that can get wasted in dead space, which is space within the airways and lungs that just can't be occupied by air. Okay. There's about 150 milliliters per breath, depending on the size of the person. If I'm taking like 20 breaths per minute, breathing quite fast, that's three liters. Is that right? Yeah. Math, three liters. If I'm breathing 10 breaths per minute, that would only be one and a half. So long as, I have the ability to increase the size of each of those breaths when I can slow them down. The nose, also that resistance, often gives the diaphragm something to pull against. So not just because, if, you, if, you're, a nas if you're a mouth breather and you breathe quite shallow from your upper chest and you switch to nasal breathing, it doesn't suddenly fix everything. <laughs> you're still going to be in that pattern of using your shoulders, your neck, your, your traps, your pecs to like lift that rib cage. And you'll just do nasal breathing like this, lifting your shoulders and ribs. So we need to reteach ourselves those mechanics. But neuroplasticity, we can we can do that. Like the brain will will learn um, or can relearn. And when we are able to breathe well with the diaphragm, we've trained ourselves to be able to use that diaphragm efficiently. If I'm using my nose or my mouth, and how I use my mouth, I can still. Breathe in and out through the mouth, but very much using my diaphragm to facilitate good mechanics of breathing because that diaphragm, what we're doing is we're drawing air into the lower lobes of the lungs where the highest density of alveoli is and the most amount of blood sits within the lungs because of gravity. That upper shallow chest breathing, not only is it like part of that stress response, not only is it be wasting a lot of air in dead space, we're not getting air to the parts of the lungs where the most transfer of oxygen gets from the lungs actually into the blood so we're ticking loads of boxes in terms of efficiency just by breathing well in terms of the diaphragm trying to breathe slower whether you're breathing with the nose or the mouth you try to breathe with the nose when you that becomes just too restricted with the mouth but still not going to fast panting and still using the diaphragm now depending on where you're at with your breathing you might need to do some breathing practices in isolation, away from the challenge of your sport in order to just recorrect those things. But then you want to integrate them back in. My big thing is, I'm an, you've heard my story, I'm an actual player, I'm not a yoga guy, not a meditation guy. I like all to do all those things, but like I just can't engage with them. It's just not the way I'm wired or built. And so trying to get into meditation, there was just like a block, like I, I found it challenging. Practicing working on my breathing was a way into when you sit and you do some breathing, you are meditating, you're meditating on your breath. It's present moment. It's mindfulness. But it's with a, for me, it was a, a, a gateway, a doorway into it because I wanted to improve my breathing, but mainly because, okay, I need to rehab my, 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 my brain in the, in the immediate term. But it was like, I wanted to be good at, like, I want to be good at the things I do. I like feeling good and I like exercising and enjoying my exercise. And so having somewhere initially in isolation but then integrate it back in and i want that to be the big thing about that is or why i'm saying why i'm i'm not a breathing i'm, I'm not a yoga guy like, i even say i'm not a breathing guy like i'm i'm an ex-rugby player i'm not a, i'm not a breathing guy but i'll teach you about breathing because i've learned about it that i want it to be because it's going on all the time whether you're thinking about it or not it's always there with you it just needs to be integrated into our normal day-to-day -day lives and integrated into our warm-ups and integrated into the way we manage our system when we're exercising, the way we manage that system when we're trying to 
down regulate and recover afterwards and that's the, <laughs> that's the goal but initially yeah. sometimes you have to practice stuff in isolation the same as any skill yeah with, uh, with the well, meditation that's exactly. thing, that's, that's hilarious because like the that's only way I can exactly meditate right. is to like actually lock into like my breath. Like that's, and you're still not I per se like meditating and becoming mindless of that, but at least you're mindful of something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because if I don't, my mind drifts too much. It's just like, I'm, I'm just not built for that. So like I can 100% concur on that. And look, like someone listening to this, that's like a meditation expert. Um, would and I'd happily be criticized on that because I'm sure like that needs a lot of criticism. But right now, it's become that was the over the last few years, that's become like the gateway for me, and it sounds like for you to engage in a some soft level of mindfulness meditation. Now, who's to say as we engage in that more in a few years' time, I'm not just loving doing full-on meditation where we're not breathing, we're not focusing on our breathing. And this was actually the starting point to make that happen. Like who's to say that's not, not the case. So I'm not, um, I'm not saying um, that you should just do this and you shouldn't meditate. I'm, I'm saying just like from a personal perspective, that's where I've been at. You've obviously shared that that's where you've been at and how many other people are, are the same and would hugely benefit from just that, that initial gateway into it. All right. So just a couple more talking points here. Let's kind of nail down, daily practices like upon waking uh midday end of day because i'm about holistic health too if you want to optimize i think you should be optimizing all the time uh within means so let's talk about how we can best leverage our breath throughout the entire day and then i think something that's kind of flowed a little bit throughout the conversation that i think you'll enjoy too because you do the school of uh, calisthenics is creativity and movement and then how breath in uh can influence posture uh and how you can actually you know utilize different breath movements within holds to actually increase your control of posture so we'll kind of end out with that so this next talking point daily practices to me upon waking you don't want to stress yourself out but at the same time you do want to stimulate uh so to me I would think that you would want to have some type of breathing that would stimulate you perhaps. Uh, whereas towards the end of the day, you might want to be more calming. You can talk about some of the different things, but my own understanding of it's I've want to view light and I kind of want to stimulate myself in the appropriate manner. Uh, coffee has been my way for far too long. So in order to try and get around that, uh, breathing practices, a little bit of movement and uh, seeing light have been ways that, that I've kind of brought into the fray. So just talk about some of the different practices you would use in the AM, midday, yeah. and at the end of the day and kind of the rationale behind that. I'm sort of quite fond of or big on like bookending the day. So like, like you said, that this particular this the start and the end of the day um and it would be un we've, we've mentioned the, the term they're sort of like holistic it would be unfair for us we'll, we'll talk about like breathing but it's unfair for us and i think it also gives us and this is a bit of like a lot of what just like uh, common marketing and life sort of tries to tell us that like find that thing that's going to be the extra little thing like instead of coffee have this thing and it's like well actually what what dictates how great you feel in the morning well, it starts before you've woken up. It's like what you were doing last night that affected your sleep the night before. And it starts days and weeks and months before that. It's like, what are you doing all the time in terms of your circadian rhythms? You know, I'm not the expert on these things. I'm just pointing out that like to have an appreciation of the wider picture rather than just the thing you're going to do in the morning. Um, and then that uh, which will then also gives a little bit of context of what I'm going to say. So for me in the morning, um, there's going to be uh, a number of things throughout the day that will stimulate me. <laughs> One of which ideally, if we can like sunshine or at least sunlight, like getting outside and exposing ourselves to that. My breathing practice is not to wake me up, but that's probably because I don't, feel if you get your if you get your sleep right you will wake up feeling like it's morning like let's go it's 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 go time <laughs> like it's i've had my sleep i don't feel like i need to stay in bed any longer for that, that type of scenario so it's less about trying to like energize because uh, if it was if i was trying to like energize i need to do something to uh, more stimulate that sort of more um sympathetic drive so i'd be it would need to be more like faster inhalations or something like that um, or breath holds that we do i'll talk about them for warm-ups but like breath holding is a stressor on the, on the body 
Um, but first thing in the morning when I wake up, what I'm looking to do is set the tone and intention of my day-to-day -day breathing for the entire day, which is actually the thing that's going to influence my breathing the most. Your respiratory center that's monitoring your CO2 is not only paying attention when you're exercising, it's paying attention all day and all night when you're asleep. So what I'm trying to do in the morning is setting a tone and intention for my breathing, which is in and out through the nose, slow and quiet. Because if it's quiet, it's soft. And if it's quiet, it's, it is also slow. You can't breathe fast and quiet. Um, and try to build up some air hunger, but in a relaxed fashion. So I'm breathing so slowly and so lightly, you almost feel like you're not breathing at all in a way that's how we sort of can, can get to it, but certainly trying to be so. And then it gives you that, that soft awareness of your breathing so that when I'm, you're driving in the car to work, you can tune in and listen to your breathing. And like, can I just simply breathe quieter than I currently want to? That is improving the way that you breathe. And if you do it in and out through the nose, brilliant. You can breathe quite quietly or even silently in and out through the nose. Fantastic. Um, at night, we're looking to like really down regulate and really push into that parasympathetic tone. Also set the intention and the habit for how you're going to breathe when you're not awake and not conscious as in when you're asleep. And that would be then biasing the, the exhalation. So uh, uh, my sort of favorite one and the simplest one to do four seconds in six seconds out. So a slightly longer exhalation than inhalation helps with that parasympathetic activity the four in six hours, a 10 second breath cycle. So that's six breaths per minute. Again, been shown to be beneficial for parasympathetic vagal tone, heart rate variability, all those markers that are around actually getting the system to be in a state of recovery and repair. When we're talking like midday and things, like a, it's just a nice opportunity there to talk about like pre-training warm-ups. When you do in your warm-ups and you do want to upregulate, you want to get ready for a session, um, that's where we utilize breath holding. So holding the breath, not like the bolt score where you don't use any willpower, where you use willpower. Holding the breath and trying to create a strong response. What happens when we're holding the breath and with the oxygen, we do them all after an exhale, not after inhaling. Because after exhaling, it means that your blood oxygen saturation is going to drop quicker because you haven't got an air full of your, your lungs full of air to be able to replenish that that leaves the blood. So we get this hypoxia, which is just a fancy word for low oxygen. When we hold the breath after an exhale strongly and your CO2 isn't leaving the body. So that goes up nice and high. So that's hypercapnic. So this like hypoxic hypercapnic effect, two things go on in the immediate term, the spleen contracts strongest around 30 second breath hold and strongest after five. And the spleen acts like a blood bank holds about 8% additional red blood cells and releases some more red blood cells around the system for anywhere between uh, 10 minutes up to an hour before it will, pull them back in but that what that means is i've got the potential for some extra oxygen carrying capacity by having some more red blood cells going around my system the other thing that happens at the same time but the effect takes longer to kick in is uh, the kidneys respond to that hypoxia that low oxygen by releasing naturally more epo into the system which peaks about three hours like a, after five challenging breath holes over 30 seconds they've shown in some research like 24 percent uh, increase in epo production peaking three hours after and that peak of EPO three hours after then elicits the, um, the bone marrow to produce more red blood cells about three or four days later. So there's a delay in that. But if each time you're doing your warm-up for training, you throw in three to five breath holds after an exhalation and start getting good at those to be able to make them 30 seconds long and challenging, then you start to see, okay, I've got in this like constant top-up of uh, red blood cells in an immediate and in the longer term. Um, that's where the longer term, that EPO effect is what we describe the oxygen advantage as simulating altitude training. It's like the same effect someone would get from being at altitude. You can get you can get your blood oxygen saturation to drop quite comfortably to like the mid 80s, which is like being at sort of 4000 meters of, of altitude. Yeah, good points there. The, the breath holds are the things from the oxygen advantage that I've 
utilized myself the most uh, that I that I've you find in, enjoyed the most. Uh, whenever I was doing them, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, sometimes you just allow things to get swept to the side, but it's it's truly it's challenging. I enjoy it. I like to move too. I was I was I was wondering like, can you like walk as you're doing those? I like yeah, to yeah. walk as holding. Yeah, we would we would start walking because that's easiest. Um, rather than just doing it stationary, start walking. And then what we want to do is get good at them. So, you know, we can do them. Uh, we do them in, we can do them in like repeat sprints with, um, it's probably for, for another, for another chat, but um, getting them doing it, getting it in anything, but you're just getting comfortable, confident and comfortable in your breath holding ability. So that if I'm doing some lunges in my warm up, I do them then. If I'm doing like some rotator cuff work in my upper body session, I do them then. Like it doesn't matter what the physical exercise is to a degree um when we're looking at that hypercapnia creates quite an acidic environment with some strong breath holds that when we use them in a trait in it less more so in like a training environment where we're trying to elicit like improving our like lactate threshold and ability to endure and like reduce fatigue then we we can improve the buffering some of the studies that they've done recently are showing that the buffering capacity of the muscle compartments themselves to that acidity that's created because you're holding the breath and there's no oxygen or very little oxygen that that has a huge effect on things like repeat sprintability they've done a couple of studies in rugby and then one in, in basketball where they've had the same results and that's by just doing whatever like sprints they're doing but just holding the breath after an exhale with it and the more sport specific <clears throat> the activity that you're doing is the better their adaptation is is what they're sort of noticing which only makes sense doesn't it so the last thing I kind of want to give you an opportunity to talk about is calisthenics a little bit holds. I, I'm I'm interested in this too because I am much more biased towards the weight room. I lift I lift weights. I enjoy sprinting too, but I really like moving weight. But that's one of the things that I've benefited wildly from is from like getting my upper body involved in like holds and just hangs and things such as that. Like I find it that I use that in the mornings actually is one of the ways to kind of like wake me up and like to get myself feeling aligned and just kind of as a low dose thing to kind of stimulate me. So <clears throat> something I had noted uh, before we started the podcast is that our breathing influences our posture. Our position is encouraged by our postures that we're able to take on. So really our movements are limited by our breathing is what we've been getting at this entire conversation. So can you talk about how all this kind of comes full circle within calisthenics and some of the ways that you attempt to be creative uh, with, with some of these methods of movement, because the name of your podcast is the uh, movement strength and play podcast. So there's an element of play and creativity there. So let's talk a little bit about how, I guess you could flow through movement and encourage creativity and movement and how that could be beneficial as well. Yeah. No, 100%. Because I, I guess one of the things with the creativity in the play is that if I'm trying to train my system, my particularly calisthenics base, there's going to be a lot of upper body stuff. If I'm going to, if I'm going to carry on getting stronger, when put, when sort of like a normal pull up or push ups become easy, then we know that I need to provide, carry on providing an overload in order, in order to get stronger. And I, if I'm not going to just, put more weight on a bar doing bench press which then isolates things a little bit more but makes it easy to govern over progressive overload i've got to think outside of the box a little bit with how do i manipulate my body position and body angles etc to make this now quite basic exercise for me how do i make that harder like so how about in my like in my pull-up rather than just pulling straight up equally on both arms, I'm like shifting over to one side in what people call like a, a typewriter pull-up where it's it's not a single arm pull-up, but we're starting to bias more weight going into one side that's coming down. Um, in my push-ups, like, you know, the, the extreme would be doing push-ups with your feet not touching the floor and not touching anything, as in like a planche push-up. Like if someone thinks you can't get strong do it. You can only get strong in a uh, like a ver uh, in a horizontal pushing position doing bench press. Then you see someone doing planche push-ups and tell me that they that you know that they're not that they're strong. Um, the thing that's the thing with calisthenics body weight movement when you start to see that the the way it can progress allows for strength 
progression in terms of overload, then you start to see that like, okay, but this, this creative side, but when you're moving, you're integrating rather than isolating. You're literally, when we're thinking about like how fascial slings and chains work within the body, like you're constantly having to integrate whatever strength you're trying to apply down through the rest of the chain and seeing how it manipulates and seeing how your body wants to compensate. There's no hiding, whereas I can hide my compensation on a, on a typical, if I'm on a machine or, or something potentially. Um, and like one of the things that from uh, bringing it in and a little bit into sort of the, the breathing aspect of it, of like, where, where are our lungs? Our lungs are in our rib cage. How, what, does our, what does our rib cage connect into? into the spine when we talk about posture a lot of time we're talking about spinal position and lumbar pelvic hips so we're talking about the hips and, that, and the pelvis as well all of the ribs connect into the spine when we talk about the shoulder we're talking one of the key things is like where's that shoulder blade riding on that rib cage yeah but what if the rib cage is out <laughs> if the rib cage is out the shoulder's out and if my breathing is out typically like one of the classic ones would be like we're, we're, we're sat in we're overextended in the rib cage and so in the ribs are flared and we're more likely to then be, we're encouraging that anterior tilt. Um, and when we're in that position, then, you know, when the rib cage is out, the shoulder's out. Now, a lot of the time with people, you can do, it's, it's really quite nice when you, you do something that might be as, as quick as doing like three breaths where we're focusing on getting the ribs down. So not the inhale part, we're talking about that exhale part. We're going right back to what we said at the start. And getting people to bring those ribs down and in, like so flexion, internal rotation of those ribs. And flattening that out a bit and like repositioning that and then retest their shoulder range and they're like holy moly what did you just do like i can now internally rotate my shoulder like i didn't do anything you just start breathing a bit better and your ribs are in a bit better position and then we we're talking about that's like so how the rib cage will influence the scapula and the spine but then also the diaphragm itself which attaches onto the lumbar spine and the uh, the ribs at the front the diaphragm influences influences and gets influenced by other tissues around the pelvis. So as major QL come in and attach fascially at the same points around that diaphragm. So if we have dysfunction and tightness and restrictions around the diaphragm, it makes sense and is very likely that we're going to have some issues around that lower back pelvis hip flexor region as well. And when you improve someone's breathing or release their diaphragm, they get some immediate release of those tissues. It's like, oh, my hip flexor feels a bit better. And, you know, maybe I've got some range now out of my, either my back is feeling better or, you know, there's, there's some huge, there's some stuff on, um, there was a study, I can't remember the, what year it was, was it 2014? There was one done with function, functional movement screen and um, breathing. And there, there were, if someone was diagnosed or they, they assessed everyone as like, are they either a diaphragmatic functional breather or not? They put them in those sort of two categories. And if they were identified as, diaphragmatic like breathing well functionally with the diaphragm they were 87.5 percent likely to pass an fms test a functional movement screen it was it was like not 100 but it was nearly like basically if someone breathes well they move well and you think like breathing with the diaphragm the diaphragm's effect on core strength intra-abdominal pressure like how all that influences posture and you sort of go, well, so if, if breathing's what breathing's the movement pattern you're going to do the most out of the day, people try and do 10,000 steps, but you're going to do 20, you're going to do twice that of breathing. So breathing is the thing that you're going to do the most. It has the biggest influence because it just, you do it the most it's inside and it affects so much within the body. If that's going well, then chances are you're going to move well. I like a lot of points that you're, that you're saying there, as far as like going back to whenever you were talking about the calisthenics, I like how it is self-regulating uh, too. Uh, that makes it, that can make it safe or, or make it like a more natural process, I guess you would say, because a lot of the times you see within weight processes, you've been in rugby, I've been involved in American football. We know those, we know those environments. Um, you know, some people would say knuckle draggers, right? Wanting to put more weight on there and things such as that, but it's just a more self-regulating process, I guess you would say. Not that there's anything bad about barbells, but what you were speaking towards like flow and creativity and like an actual finding of self in movement. Uh, and you're kind of speaking about that as far as like 
breathing. You're what you're basically saying was that you're going to take over 20,000 breaths a day. Uh, and you're trying to just get in 10,000 steps. If you can just, if those two things can mesh together, that's kind of what we've been talking about all day. If those things mesh together, both are going to, you know, increase substantially. It's just breathing is a global process that has global implications for the body. Uh, and it just energy is a thing that stuck out in my mind so often. It's such a way to to integrate our energy, how we're able to produce energy, uh, the energy that we'll have throughout the day, how we're actually moving uh, and functioning, you know, the posture, like you were talking about, not to dive into too many other things here, but it literally, if, if this is you, you're just not in a very advantageous position to be dynamic or to be functional or to, you know, to conserve energy in your movement. Uh, so, all those things were kind of sticking out at the end of the conversation there. The last thing I want to do is give you an opportunity to talk about where people can find you, where people can find your podcast and all your other offerings, and then we'll jump off. Um, yeah. Cheers, man. Um, loved it. Loved, uh, loved it by the way. And so, uh, yeah, good on you for, for everything you're doing. And thanks for, for having us on this. You know, there's a number of people doing some great stuff in the world of, of breathing and bringing it into to sports and wider than that. And it's, you know, it's great to be able to ever have an opportunity to, uh, to talk about it, encourage people to engage in it because the, the benefits of it. Um, you mentioned our um, podcast as well. Um, I do that with Tim Stevenson's a fellow like co-founder of the Scorecast Clinics, and our podcast is the movement strength and play podcast. The website is scorecastnx.com. Um, for, um, for all my breathwork training, that is done at um, probreathwork.com um, and you can find me our best places on Instagram, Jacko Human Flag. Awesome. And uh, follow him, you know, like I said, for, for great quotes like we referenced today in the show where he said basically that you're either living or holding your breath, you're either breathing or breathing out or you're holding your breath or you're dying basically, right? So- <laughs> oh, you're dead. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So follow him for more great content like that, man. I really enjoyed the uh, conversation. I just wanted to ask you one more question, if if you will, offline real quick. Um, Other than that, thanks for sitting down with me. Really enjoyed the chat today. Yeah, cheers, man. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To keep up with all my latest offerings, make sure to hit the subscribe button. Check the show notes for links to all of Jacko's offerings, including his School of Calisthenics webpage and his podcast. I've even included a link to the Oxygen Advantage program that Jacko is certified within. If you feel led to do so, you can leave up to a five-star rating on Apple and a review as well. Next week's show will be my one-year anniversary and 50th episode, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you guys. As always, thanks for listening.